I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Vet Sessions. Today, I'm so excited to welcome our returning guest, Dr. Matt Cornia. Matt, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks a lot, Shannon. It's great to be back. Excellent. So last time we talked a little bit about your career path to this point. And at that point, you were kind of finishing up your internal medicine residency here at OVC. And I know that you have embarked on a new adventure. So will you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, so I've uh, kind of changed paths a little bit. I'm still doing some internal medicine work, but I'm uh, kind of full time in a critical care residency right now. So uh, kind of moving into the ICU and doing a bit of work there. Amazing. Amazing. I think at the time you told me it was going to be just like internal medicine, but faster. Yeah. yeah very similar. Very similar. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. You're going to be amazing at that. That's so well, great. Thanks. So let's get started on our topic, which is inflammatory bowel disease and gastrointestinal small cell lymphoma in cats, which is a fantastic topic. It's good stuff. I thought maybe just to bring everybody on the same page, we could start out with some definitions. So what is inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah. And I think, you know, right off the bat, because it's, it's cats, it's going to get complicated. And yes. I think, you know, we can, we can start right off with even just the definition being a bit tricky. So, you know, in a dog, I think things are a lot easier, um, you know, as is as often usual. the case, um, <laughs> you know, and just to kind of take a step back in some terminology, you know, we're increasingly moving to try to use the term chronic enteropathy rather than IBD for a lot of our, our chronic GI diseases. Um, and that's really because it's more of a catch-all term. And so a chronic enteropathy is basically any gastrointestinal disease that lasts for more than two weeks. Um, and so chronic enteropathies in dogs are a whole catch-all that incorporates things like food responsive enteropathy that may respond to diet change, uh, bacteria therapy or antibiotic responsive enteropathy, things like lymphangiectasia and protein losing enteropathies, ulcerative colitis, and then IBD, which is basically the idiopathic or the, the type of chronic enteropathy that doesn't respond to anything other than immunosuppression. Okay. And in cats, we'd like for that to be the case as well. Um, I think the big thing is that cats don't get a lot of those. Cats don't really get bacterial therapy responsive enteropathy to any great extent. Cats don't get the histiocytics and the PLEs and things like that to any great extent. And so we've been less kind of fussy about moving this chronic enteropathy terminology into cats and tend to call what we would call chronic enteropathy in dogs IBD okay. in a cat or inflammatory bowel disease. So I think when we say, what is IBD? It depends on how much of a purist you are. From a technical standpoint, IBD is a chronic enteropathy that is non-responsive to anything other than immunosuppressives. And we suspect is a autoimmune or at least immunodysregulation type of condition. From a, a little bit less strict case, IBD is a chronic GI disease of a cat that is not infectious or neoplastic. And I think a little bit of that kind of depends on how much of a purist we want to be. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I do like the enteropathy term yeah. because it's so much more all-encompassing. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's probably a more exact term. I think it becomes a little bit difficult in cats because it's like, okay, it's a chronic enteropathy. Well, it's probably IBD because they don't have a lot of other chronic enteropathies. And I mean, technically, food responsive enteropathy is not IBD. So if it responds to a diet change, we probably shouldn't call it IBD. We should call it a food responsive enteropathy. But in cats, they respond to diet and we call them IBD. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think it just depends on how much of a purist you want to be with your terminology there. 
Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that yeah. for sure. Okay. And then what is GI small cell lymphoma? Yeah. So small cell lymphoma is a type of intestinal cancer that's relatively unique to cats. It's it's had comparisons to some human conditions like enteropathy associated lymphomas, but it really is a quite drastically different condition. This is an indolent, slow growing lymphoma. So it is a cancer of the, the lymphocytes that diffusely infiltrates the intestinal tract tends to be small bowel. It can affect the stomach and it can affect the colon, but in general, it tends to be more focused on the small bowel. It is a T-cell lymphoma, but the lymphocytes are small. They look very normal. If I just showed you some scattered on a slide, you'd say those are normal looking lymphocytes. And generally, the more normal cancerous cells look, the less aggressive the cancer is. And that's the case for small cell lymphoma, which again has been called a lot of different things, enteropathy-associated lymphomas, etc. Um, but it's a slow-growing lymphoma that looks clinically, and with a lot of our diagnostic tests, very similar to an IBD, um, but is a cancerous condition. Okay, okay, thank you. And so how do we know that a cat likely has IBD or small cell lymphoma? Yeah, so I think, you know, IBD and small cell lymphoma, I think something we're going to be coming back to a lot, present basically identically. In terms of our clinical signs, our physical exam, our history, even our lab work, these are basically identical diseases. And how they present can vary a lot depending on the individual animal. And I think it's a lot like, you know, people with chronic GI diseases. Some of these cats are chronic vomiters. Some of these cats have diarrhea. Some might have constipation. Sometimes it's just weight loss with a poor appetite or weight loss with a ravenous appetite. Um, but any combination of signs kind of localizable to the GI tract, be they vomiting or diarrhea, be they loss of appetite or even just a malabsorptive condition, um, but some type of chronic GI signs that often starts off slowly um, and can be present for a long period of time before they're diagnosed, um, can be an IBD or a small cell lymphoma. And I think a lot of the cats who have, you know, more mild IBDs uh, probably have it for a long period of time and, and no one really ever comments. And a lot of the reason for that is that people think vomiting in cats is, is normal. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, and this is that classic situation that we've all encountered of, you know, someone coming and saying, hey, you know, in the physical exam and getting the history, does your cat vomit? No, no, doesn't really vomit. Never throws up? Nope, nope, not really. Any hairballs? Meh, three or four times a week. Yeah. Right, Because in people's minds, hairballs aren't vomiting. If a cat's having three or four hairballs a week, that cat has IBD until proven otherwise. Right, you know These cats who are vomiting really more than once or twice a month have some kind of GI disease that's leading to that chronic vomiting. And I think most of these cats are probably IBD kitties, and then they aren't diagnosed until you know several years later. And they've probably had this their whole life, manifesting as the chronic vomiting. And then when they're six or eight, they're losing weight, they're vomiting daily, they've got diarrhea, and now they come in. And it seems like an acute history, but really this has been going on for five years, and no one really thought to comment on the chronic vomiting. Absolutely. I have seen that too so many times. The classic vomiting cat history, for sure. Yes. So then how do we diagnose these conditions? Yeah, and so I guess how we diagnose these conditions depends a little bit on whether we mean how do we diagnose that a cat has one of these conditions <laughs> or how do we specifically diagnose which of them? You know, in terms of diagnosing that a cat has either IBD or small cell lymphoma, you know, I think we're going to start off with the history of some type of GI sign, any of the things we talked about for a period of more than a couple of weeks. Clinically, these animals on physical exam can look 
radically different. Some of them are fat, happy cats. You wouldn't know anything is wrong and they just happen to have diarrhea. And, you know, some are skin and bones looking like, you know, they're walking mummies because uh, they can't absorb any nutrition. Yeah. And I think we can see either end of the spectrum. Same thing goes when we start looking at the lab work. You know, we may have completely spotless blood work or we may see changes kind of consistent with chronic disease. And that might be, you know, mild anemias. It might be inflammatory leukograms, sometimes eosinophilia. You know, we might see a little bit of a low albumin or a low cholesterol if we're starting to lose some of these nutritional kind of factors. If we start looking into some of our kind of fancier testing, you know, a lot of these guys might have elevations in their, their lipases, suggesting some degree of chronic pancreatitis. It's not unusual to see hepatopathies associated with these. You know, we're not really going to get into the triaditis end of things here, but, you know, it's not unusual to see those types of things concurrently. Vitamin B12 levels might be low. Folate levels might be low. You know, these types of things can, can really be present in a lot of these guys. When we start looking into more advanced testing, um, ultrasonography is going to be one of the big tools with okay. these in terms of kind of non-invasive ways to approach things. And ultrasound isn't something that I would ever use to say an animal has IBD versus lymphoma, but I think it's very good for saying it has one of those. Okay. There are fairly characteristic findings in terms of small intestinal wall thickening, you know, specifically thickening of that muscularis layer on intestines, often some lymphadenopathy associated with that. And, you know, really what I'm looking to see is that some of those changes are present because about 90% of cats with lymphoma will have these changes and probably in the 70, 75% of cats with IBD will have these changes. So, you know, not seeing them doesn't guarantee that it's absent, but seeing them is pretty specific that it's present. And I think, you know, the other big thing I'm looking for is ruling out other processes, mainly more kind of concerning neoplasms. You know, do we have a mass effect that suggests there might be a large cell lymphoma or an adenocarcinoma or something along those lines? And, you know, I want to make sure we don't have those and then assess for our concurrent cholangitis, pancreatitis, those types of things. But I think ultrasonographically, you know, it's pretty straightforward for us to say this cat has some form of chronic GI disease, either IBD or lymphoma. And, you know, there's a lot of radiologists and internists who look and say, ah, this one's definitely a lymphoma. You know, it looks really thick or it looks really concerning. And despite a lot of people thinking that they can make this differentiation, they really can't. You know, the evidence really suggests that there are no ultrasonographic features that are able to differentiate these. Unfortunately. And unfortunately, that <laughs> applies to most things. You know, when we look at population level values, there are some differences, you know, B12 levels tend to be lower in the lymphomas compared to the IBDs or, you know, we can look and say, hey, and, you know, male Siamese cats, the LDH levels are higher if they happen to have lymphoma than IBD. And these are not really useful for the individual patient. They're more population level values. And I think okay. ultimately through a combination of history being consistent with chronic GI disease, physical exam, not really showing much else. Blood work and fecal testing, ruling out parasitism and hyperthyroidism and kidney disease and anything else. And then ultrasound suggesting that we have that kind of pattern of changes will usually get me fairly certain that this kitty has either IBD or small cell lymphoma. Okay, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So speaking of either, mm -hmm. should we try to differentiate whether they have inflammatory bowel disease or small cell lymphoma? Yeah, and I mean, I think we're getting into the little bit of hot button questions here where, you know, we may have different answers when we talk to, to different people. And I think the should we depends a little bit on in what sense we mean should. 
Um, you know, we're going to take a step back for a minute and just talk a little bit about our, I guess, treatment and prognosis yeah. options for both of these, because I think that becomes important in the, the should question. So IBD in cats, about 50% of them are diet responsive. So we put them on a hypoallergenic diet, uh, you know, maybe a probiotic or whatever, if you feel like it, but hypoallergenic diet, about half of them will resolve and not have any additional clinical signs. And great, those ones had IBD. About half of them don't respond to diet and require immunosuppressive therapy. And generally in cats, being such a steroid-tolerant species, you know, that means steroids, but we can look at really any immunosuppressive protocol for, for these animals. Okay. Um, the median survival time of IBD is until they die of something else, right? You know, the studies <laughs> yeah. that look at it usually don't reach a median because the study ends before half of them die. Yeah. Small cell lymphoma is not going to respond to diet. Um, and so I think, you know, we can certainly say if it responded to diet, it probably isn't small cell at least, but small cell lymphoma is not going to respond to dietary therapy and is treated with a combination of prednisone and, and chlorambucil. So a steroid plus a chemotherapeutic, but an oral chemotherapeutic they give at home a couple times a week, like in the scheme of chemos, kind of a, a wimpier lower grade one, still chemo, but you know, not talking going into the hospital for an IV infusion. We're talking a pill a couple times a week. Right. And median survival with small cell lymphoma will vary depending on the study, but is in the ballpark of 900 to 1,000 days, you know, usually about three years. Okay. And for a disease that's often a disease of older cats, a three-year survival might mean you die of kidney disease rather than of your small cell lymphoma. Right. And so I think, you know, when we talk about our, our therapies there, definitely they're, they're different. If I knew for a fact an animal had lymphoma, probably wouldn't futz a lot with diet and would start the chlorambucil pretty early. If I knew for sure it had IBD, I'd probably be less aggressive with the chlorambucil and, you know, futz around a little more with diet. Mm -hmm. This being said, my cat with IBD that doesn't respond to therapy, you know, doesn't respond to diet, responds a little bit, maybe not perfectly or maybe not at all to the prednisone. Well, I'm going to start a second immunosuppressive and chlorambucil is a beautiful second line immunosuppressive in cats. For your cat with small cell lymphoma, I'm going to start them on a steroid and chlorambucil. And so, you know, six months in, these two animals may be on the exact same therapy. And so I guess in terms of the should we differentiate question, there's a practical aspect and there's more of a high level aspect. You know, from the kind of high level academic aspect, I would love to know specifically what I'm treating. Of course. I would like to know, am I dealing with a cancer? Am I dealing with something autoimmune? I'd like to be able to give the owner a sense of prognosis. You know, are we going to be living for three years? And then, you know, maybe if this is a younger animal being forced to make some earlier decisions, or are we going to have a normal life expectancy? Um, you know, and I'd like to be able to give chemo to the cat who needs chemo and not give chemo to the one who doesn't. So from, you know, an academic level, I think we should know what disease we're treating. And I think it can be important to differentiate them. From a practical on the floor kind of level, well, unless you're really acutely dying of this disease, which is the exception and not the rule, eh, we can start a diet, give it a couple weeks, start a steroid, give it some time, start chlorambucil, and see where we are. If it's IBD, well, we're following the very reasonable path. If it's small cell lymphoma, maybe we're taking a little longer to get there than we'd like, but we're getting there. And what's nice about, you know, the fact that this is a chlorambucil-based protocol is alkylators are not generally affected by the kind of resistance to chemo we think about with steroids. So we don't really gain, you know, chemo resistance pre-treating with steroids when we're, we're just going to treat with an alkylator. So ultimately, 
on the ground, how much does that matter? You know, I think we could really question that. So should we differentiate? You know, it may put on my academic hat and, you know, want to be able to look at population level data and really know what I'm treating. Yes. If someone doesn't have a lot of money and I have a choice between spending that money trying to differentiate or spending that money on treatment, I mean, I know where that's going to go. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And often, like the number of clients who have the financial ability or the willingness to refer their cat for endoscopy is somewhat limited, I find. So I, I really like to have an alternative to that. And I also, it's nice to have the freedom to know that that is a reasonable thing to do. I think it's a very reasonable thing yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Thank you. And, you know, you've kind of mentioned that, um, you know, and I think we, we didn't specifically state this, but the only way we're going to differentiate these conditions is histologically, is looking under a microscope at the tissue um, and kind of having a pathologist tell us this, this is IBD or lymphoma. And, you know, that's where this endoscopy comes from there. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk more about that. Can we actually differentiate IBD yeah. from lymphoma? And in my mind, that's the more relevant question here because we can sit you know kind of on our pedestals and talk a little bit about you know whether we should or whether we shouldn't and how important it is to be able to differentiate but really when we get practical I think the question is can we and you know this is something where again I don't know that we're going to have universal opinions on this but my personal opinion is that we cannot Um, is that this is something where it's a bit of an academic discussion as to whether or not we should because I don't think we often can You know, and I think when we think about IBD and lymphoma, you know, the most common forms of IBD are going to be lymphoplasmocytic infiltration. And, you know, we'll kind of see that pathologically. And, you know, a lot of the times this lymphoplasmocytic IBD is going to look virtually identical to the infiltration of small lymphocytes that we see with a small cell lymphoma. And so for a lot of pathologists looking at a lot of samples, the histology may not be definitive. You know, even if it is, we can talk about why that might not mean a lot, but but the histology may not be definitive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we'll spend some money on the scope and the biopsies and have the pathologist look and then say, well, we want some more tests. And, you know, the more tests that we can do are immunohistochemistry, which is going to look at antibodies on the surface of cells and tell us, are they T cells, B cells, a mix of them, Um, or PAR, the PCR for antigen receptor rearrangement, which is going to tell us the clonality of these cells. And, you know, the hope would be that these tests often in conjunction IHC usually runs in the, you know, four or 500 range and par, you know, quite a bit more than that mm-hmm. in conjunction may be able to tell us what these are. And I think that would be, you know, very nice is that we could look at these samples, look at histopath, look at IHC, look at par and be able to say based on the distribution of antigens and whether or not these cells are all clones of each other, whether this is IBD or small cell lymphoma. Now, even with these tests, it's sometimes an unclear diagnosis. There are pseudoclonalities and there's clonal cells and polyclonal backgrounds and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But I think really when we get down to it, there's two big concerns that I have. So the first one would be, let's say we go in and biopsy either endoscopic or even open full biopsies. And the pathologist reads it and says, this is IBD whether that's because of the H&E or whether they've done the PAR and the IHC or whatever, they say, for a fact, this cat has IBD, I am 100% sure. Even if this is a perfect pathologist with perfect tests, what percentage of this cat's GI tract did we biopsy, right? Like, realistically, we're talking about cats having an intestinal surface area the size of a tennis court, 
and our endoscopic biopsies being a couple millimeters, you know, our full thickness biopsies may be adding up to a centimeter total, but we're not talking about gigantic proportions of this. And I guess my big concern with these guys always is, you know, A, does IBD turn into lymphoma? You know, there's been debate about this back and forth and some recent studies suggesting very likely that some of it does. Mm -hmm. But um, the fact that it's IBD today doesn't necessarily mean that it's IBD in a week. And then again, the fact that there's IBD in my duodenum doesn't mean that two centimeters further, there isn't lymphoma. And so I think both spatially and temporally, we have some questions here about this cat who's not responding to my IBD therapy. Did we miss the lymphoma? Because I cannot possibly look at the entire surface area of this cat's intestine. And it was just two centimeters further was a population that would have read lymphoma. Or did we simply, you know, have an IBD that's now turned into a lymphoma? And that's why when I have an IBD that's not responding, I tend to not go to something like a cyclosporin as my second line therapy because I don't really want to treat a cancer with cyclosporin and I'm never sure if this is actually cancer or not. So my second line therapy is going to be chloramvucil because in the back of my head, I'm always saying, huh, eh, was this or is this now actually small cell lymphoma? And so I'm going to treat it as if it is, regardless of whether or not it said IBD. Sure, if it responds to IB therapy, that's great. Even there, though, it doesn't mean that six months, a year, two years down the road, it doesn't become uncontrolled. And I don't know that's because there was lymphoma all along that's just kind of breaking through or if the IBD has turned into lymphoma. But the moral of the story is I never trust that an IBD diagnosis is always going to mean IBD. Okay, that's very fair. No, that's gotten a little bit into the weeds there, but that all kind of makes reasonable sense. It it really does. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, it's the expense of the owner, but it's also, you know, the anesthesia for the cat, for relative sure. risks, you yeah. know, and endoscopy, even for an amazing scopist, does carry some risks as well. Oh, definitely. It's never a benign procedure. Um, you know, and then I think, I guess we can take this the other way and let, let's flip this over and say, okay, this is all assuming I got a diagnosis of IBD. Yeah. Well, what though, if we go in, and get a diagnosis of lymphoma. We've got a clonal population of cells. The pathologist is certain. And let's assume again that we've gone all the way and we've done IBD, uh, sorry, we've done H&E, we've done PAR, we've done IHC, we've done everything we can do. And the pathologist says, this is 100% lymphoma. At that point, at least I know it's lymphoma, right? Yeah. Wrong. Um, <laughs> and that's the other side of this. Um, so one of the favorite studies I've read was uh, a couple of years ago out of Davis. I think it was a 2019 study. I can find the reference for you if you want later. Um, that looked at some healthy cats. It took student-owned cats um, at the UC Davis. So the kitties had to be normal on blood work, normal ultrasonographically, normal B12 levels, weren't allowed to have diarrhea, weren't allowed to vomit more than once a month, you know, everything like that. We were as certain as they could be that these cats did not have any GI disease. And they did free dental cleanings on these cats if they were allowed to scope them and grab some biopsies during the dental cleanings. Great. We would expect that in these kitties, we would have effectively normal GI tracts on the, the biopsies. So they took these samples and obviously blinded, um, sent them to pathologists at a you know GI lab. These are pathologists who are good at looking at cat GI samples. And they told them, please do H&E, do IHC, do PAR, do your full workup, and tell me in these 20 cats who have no GI disease what your diagnosis is. And what do you think the outcome was? 
Unexpected. Unexpected, yeah. Of the 20 cats, 12 of them were diagnosed with small cell lymphoma. 12. 12. Out of 20. Out of 20 were diagnosed with small cell lymphoma. One was pseudoclonal. Wow. Six of them had inflammatory bowel disease and one was not really definitive. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And so this is where I sit here and say, okay, you can argue that there are flaws to the study. You know, if the pathologist hadn't been blinded, maybe they would have had different interpretations. You know, in fact, two of these cats did go on to develop what looked like clinical small cell lymphoma. So maybe we just picked it up really early and that's all very fair. But ultimately, if 60% of completely healthy cats are read out as having small cell lymphoma, how the heck am I supposed to be sure that my sick cat with a diagnosis of lymphoma actually has lymphoma? And I don't know what this means. I don't know if, you know, I expect that there are probably populations of clonal cells in the GI tract of cats normally, and that we just really don't have a great understanding of what the feline enteric immune system looks like. Um, Obviously, there are some flaws in our current diagnostic pathway, but I think the big point is that if I do get a diagnosis of lymphoma, now I have to put this cat on chemo. Yeah. But maybe the cat didn't need chemo (laughs) because the normal cats are being diagnosed with lymphoma, and those ones certainly don't need chemo and are doing fine. So I'm kind of obligated to treat once I have that diagnosis, and I don't know if I necessarily needed to, um, or at least needed to with Clarambucil. Maybe I could have gotten away with a diet change or with some bread. And I think that makes it really tricky for me when I say, okay, you know, I can spend 1500 to 2000 on the scoping, you know, another 1500 on all the various assays, and go through all of this, and end up at the end of it, saying, well, if it says IBD, I don't know that for sure it's IBD. And if it says it's lymphoma, I don't know for sure it's lymphoma. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do a diet change. I'm going to put them on some PRED. And if they fail that, they're going to go on some Clarimbucel. And at the end of the day, I guess that's my big point, is not so much the should we, which I think we can debate academically back and forth, the can we, I'm not sure it's even a relevant question whether or not we should, when I'm not convinced we can actually differentiate a lot of these animals. Um, you know, and that's really where, you know, I think it comes down to for me now, you know, other people will argue a bit differently and, you know, that's perfectly fine. And, you know, I think there are certainly some situations I'm not saying I never scope a cat. I'm not saying, you know, sometimes I don't want that information. There are certainly exceptions and cats who aren't responding and situations like that. But, you know, myself, my cats have insurance. I am an, maybe not an excellent endoscopist, but I'm, I'm reasonably good. You know, I could bring my own kitty in, sculpt it tomorrow, get some answers. Um, I'm the guy who, when my cat's voice sounded different, got an MRI because I wanted to find the meningioma. There was nothing there. But, you know, like that's the level of concern I put into my cats. Mm -hmm. And my Holly will vomit consistently if she doesn't eat her GI food and get a quarter pred every day. I have no idea if she has IBD or small cell lymphoma. But she's been trucking along for four years on a quarter tablet of Pred every day. And so I don't really care. And from my perspective, I'll MRI Merlin when his voice changes because I want to find that meningioma. But I cannot convince myself that the risks of anesthetic complications, GI perforations, anything like that, outweigh the zero benefit I'm going to get from looking at some biopsies and deciding what's going on there. Um, And so even, you know, when it comes to my personal pets, I just don't see a huge amount of utility to it. 
I love that approach. As you know, I'm an extremely practical person, as most veterinarians mm-hmm. and primary care people are. And uh, yeah, we always go through that with the students. Like, think about what medical tests are available. Can What can we do? What should we do? Is it going to advance your case? And is it going to change what you do? And yeah. if the answer is no, then rethink. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I love that approach. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we kind of put it all together with talking about a case? Love it. So let's say that Leo is a nine-year-old male-neutered domestic short hair whose owners bring him to the clinic because he hasn't been eating as well as usual for the past month or so. Um, He vomits multiple times a week and his stools range from kind of normal to sort of liquid. And let's say he's lost like half a kilogram since his last visit. So, so Mm. what differential should we be considering for you? You know, I think this is a, you know, obviously an IBD podcast here, Yes. but this kind of brings (laughs) up that idea that, you know, not eating, vomiting, diarrhea, and weight loss Mm -hmm. are kind of the core clinical signs of most cat diseases, right? Yes, that is very true. And so, you know, well, I want to say, well, vomiting and diarrhea, it's a GI disease. Let's start hunting that down. And, you know, that's certainly very reasonable. You know, I think my first diagnostic test is, is going to be your standard kind of minimum database of a CBC, biochem, probably a UA and a, a T4, because certainly this cat could be hyperthyroid. You know, this cat could have diabetes. This cat could have kidney disease. You know, we can go down the list and, you know, basically anything wrong with a cat, I think, can, can throw it off and cause a lot of these issues. Um, you know, it's presumably an indoor kitty. I think his risk of GI parasites is low, but any diarrheic animal, it's never unreasonable to do a fecal float. And, you know, I think getting that minimum database is my starting point. And just, you know, not necessarily with the goal of diagnosing IBD or small cell. And, you know, I might look at this cat and say, your guts palpate a little thick. You know, historically, it sounds like you've always been a bit of a vomiter and this is a bit worse. And, you know, IBD small cell might be at the top of my list. And I think I'm really looking at the rest of my, my lab work and things, not so much to diagnose it, as I am to just kind of tick off the boxes and say, you aren't diabetic, your kidneys are fine, your thyroid's okay. You know, we've ruled out all the other stuff. Yeah. If yeah. I get something like an eosinophilia or a monocytosis or, you know, something that makes me lean IBD all the better, but the reason I'm doing the diagnostics are just to rule out the other stuff. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So then assuming that blood work is pretty unremarkable, fecal is negative, um, what, are th- what is the next step that we should consider? Yeah. I, I really think these guys, you know, warrant an ultrasound, um, yeah. you know, if we can. And again, I'm not necessarily ultrasounding because that's going to slam dunk my IBD lymphoma. I would love it if I ultrasound and said, oh, yeah, you know, muscular is thickening. The gut wall is 0.35 you know, centimeters thick. We've got some big lymph nodes. This is a pretty classic IBD small cell presentation. That, that's great. But the real reason I'm doing it is because I want to make sure we don't have that pancreatic tumor, that gastric adenocarcinoma, that large lymphoma at the ileocolic junction, you know, any of those other bigger, scary cancers that maybe are going to require more drastic intervention, right? I want to make sure that we're not going to have to go to surgery or send to a kind of real chemo type of protocol or, you know, anything along those lines. And so my ultrasound is to both kind of lend some credence to my IBD small cell theory, but mainly just to rule out the other stuff. Okay. That makes lots of sense to me. Okay. So then assuming that the ultrasound has some fairly suggestive findings and no other yeah. issues, um, you already talked about this a little bit. So um, would you then start with a diet trial for him or? Yeah, I think that, you know, assuming the animal is relatively stable, you know, and I think mm-hmm. this really depends a little bit on on how the, the cat comes in. So if this is a kitty who's, you know, been losing a bit of weight, vomiting a bit more, but he's bright, he's doing okay, everyone's pretty happy, they're just a bit concerned, I might start with a diet trial. 
you know, if this kitty comes in, you know, and he's lost 0.5 kilos, but he started at two and a half, right? Like he wasn't exactly robust. You know, he's really not eating at all. Like this is a sick cat. Yeah. I may do a diet trial, but he's probably going on steroids at the same time as well. And I'm going to say, let's treat this guy with steroids. And then once we get him better, we can try and back off the steroids and see if we can maintain on diet. But if they're that sick, I think we should probably hit him harder to begin with and not really give him the two weeks or the four weeks for the diet to kick in. Let's let's get the disease treated and then try to wean onto the, the diet, which I think is just as acceptable. That makes lots of sense. And a steroid will help potentially with the appetite for that new diet. Yeah, for sure. You know, I don't think it's necessarily my, my main reason for it, no, but it's, no. it's certainly not going to hurt things there either. Um, it would be nice in these guys to get a B12 level. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that a normal B12 does not by any means rule out IBD small cell and a low B12 does not by any means diagnose it. I think for the animals where they can't do an ultrasound, you know, financially that might be a not an option or you're in a geographic area where that's not readily available. You know, a B12 can be a nice little kind of just additional thing to push me there, right? Yeah. Your blood work was normal. Your physical exam was normal. Your B12 is undetectably low. You know, maybe that gives me that little bit of extra oomph to convince me that these guys have IBD or small cell. If we do have a low B12, I'm, I'm going to supplement realistically, I think if we don't have a B12 level on these guys, how eh, often just supplement anyway. It's cheap. It's pretty benign. A little B12 never hurt anybody. And I think serum B12 levels are not necessarily a perfect marker of total systemic B12 status anyway. Um, and so along with a diet change and some steroids, I'll, I'll give a lot of these guys some B12. Yeah, I um, do that too. And then, you know, whatever other things we need, because steroids and diet are nice, but they don't necessarily work immediately. Serenia does, um, you know, so a little bit of Serenia, a little bit of mirtazapine, you know, whatever else we need just to keep these guys eating and comfortable until our other meds kick in. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Serenia being a really nice anti-nauseant and then the mirtazapine for anti-nausea and appetite stimulation. Yeah, exactly. You know, again, depending on the animal, if it's like, you know, we're a little bit off, we're probably not going to jump to Serenia and Mirtaz right away. Mm -hmm. But for the quite sickly ones, you know, I think that that can certainly help to just Serenia sets in in an hour. Pred might take a week to really start doing much. So, yeah. you know, just help things a little bit sooner. That makes a lot of sense. How about a probiotic? Do you like to add that or not yet? Or yeah, I think your thought on that? the data on probiotics is, is terrible. And that's not necessarily <laughs> to say that probiotics are terrible. It just, just means that the data is. Yes. Um, you know, and unfortunately, most probiotics have like one study on them, um, often sponsored by whoever makes the probiotic. <laughs> and, you know, it can become a little bit difficult to interpret. And so I think... It's really hard to say probiotics do or don't help. Um, just, I think it's kind of like saying, well, antibiotics don't help infection because I used a random antibiotic on a random infection and it didn't work. It's like, well, you know, just like you might need a specific antibiotic to treat a specific type of bacteria in a specific location, you know, you might need a specific probiotic to treat a specific GI disease. And I don't think we have a good enough idea of what those necessarily are. You know, and so if you come to me and say, well, my cat has mycoplasmosis and I've been treating him with ampicillin and he's not getting better, so antibiotics are crap. It's like, well, you know, you picked a drug that doesn't treat that bacteria. And I think the same thing might, you know, apply to a lot of probiotics that if we pick the wrong probiotic for the wrong condition, we may not treat it effectively. And the big problem is we have no idea what the right probiotic is for the right condition. And so I think this is probably part of the reason why we see such varied responses. Um, I think they're very, very unlikely to be harmful. 
but I want to make sure that if we're trying to do a diet trial, yes. we pick a probiotic that's going to be compatible with that. You know, I just hate the idea that we're, you know, trying to go onto an elimination, very strict diet, and then pouring a bunch of like, whatever beef liver extract onto the food and not really accomplishing our goals there. So, you know, often when I'm picking a probiotic, I'll try to pick something that's kind of unflavored and doesn't really have much else in it. And I'll usually try to pick something multi-strain just because I'm figuring that, Hey, if I don't know which bacteria is going to do it, might as well use seven instead of one and hope one of those is going to help. <sighs> Again, not a lot of evidence for any of it, but I think they're unlikely to be harmful. If it's a cat that's, you know, finicky and struggle to get things into them, I don't know that I'm going to really kind of kill myself trying to get the probiotic on board. But eh, if he takes it, why not? That's fair. Absolutely. Yeah. Focus on the prednisone rather than the probiotic and yeah. more as an add-on. Yeah. I do see people using flavored probiotics fairly often um, for even though the cat's on a hypo diet trial or at least um, people suggesting that. So yeah. I, I think that's really important to watch over too. Yeah, for sure. So how soon should we expect clinical improvement then? You mentioned kind of putting on a diet trial for a couple of weeks or so. Yeah, generally diet trials for GI issues are faster than diet trials for derm issues, you yes. know, and I think people often have in their head that, you know, it needs to be a month or it needs to be six weeks or, you mm -hmm. know, whatever external medicine, but whatever period of time you need for the derm response to happen, really GI responses should happen in a couple of weeks. And so, you know, two weeks, maybe three weeks is usually sufficient for most of these GI types of trial. It's a lot quicker of a washout. Um, and so that would be usually the time span that I'm kind of looking at. Um, same kind of idea, you know, with the prednisone, it might depend a little bit on what signs we're talking about. You know, if they're not eating, I'd hope that happens fairly quickly. Yeah. You know, the vomiting, hopefully relatively quickly. Diarrhea might take a little longer. And, you know, weight gain is probably going to be the last thing that we're seeing. Um, but, but generally within a couple of weeks, I want to see some response happening. Okay. So if you're starting a diet trial or a diet trial plus prednisone, depending on how sick the cat is, yeah. if you're not seeing much of a response within a couple of weeks, is that when you're thinking of reaching for your clarambucil at that point? Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to the patient and the owner as well, you of know, course. and how much of not a response we're seeing, you know, how compliant we've been with things and how sick the kitty is as well. Right. So not necessarily it's uh, hard and fast. It's been two weeks. You're not responding. We're going on chlorambucil. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of where I start thinking about things. And, you know, certainly if we're a couple of months in and we haven't had a response, we're, we're definitely moving that way. But I think it's going to depend a little bit on just how bad the cat is, you know, what degree of not improving we're seeing, you know, are we better, but just not where we'd like to be? Are we not better at all? Are we worse? I think those are going to make a bit of a difference. Of course. It's really individual. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then um, how are we going to monitor this cat moving forward then? I think a lot of it's going to depend on the clinical signs mm -hmm. that we had initially and kind of resolution or improvement of those signs. And so, you know, fecal scoring is going to improve. Vomiting frequency is going to decrease. Appetite's going to get better. We might want to see some weight gain. Not always, but we might want to see some weight gain. You know, I think whatever the problems were that brought the animal here, are going to be the things we're looking at to see that there's some improvement. Um, biochemically, there often isn't a lot that we're looking at. You know, mm -hmm. these cats, unlike our PLE dogs and things, don't tend to have bottomed out albumin, you know, don't tend to have major hematologic changes that we're trending. And so I'm, I'm often not as concerned about monitoring those. Um, usually it's going to be more of the clinical signs that we're looking at. If they are on chlorambucil, I'd, I'd like to get a CBC two weeks later. Okay. Um, it is a chemotherapeutic. Uh, I expect the lymphocytes to bottom out. That's totally fine. But I don't want to see the, the 
very, very uncommon, but but does happen, dropping the platelets or dropping the neutrophils or things like that. Um, and so I just want to check in a couple of weeks to make sure our clambucil isn't doing anything silly. Okay. Okay. That sounds really good. And then speaking of sort of risks with using chlorambucil, anything else to watch out for? Yeah, it's generally a fairly well tolerated drug. You know, mm. again, it's, it's chemo. Um, but as chemo goes, it tends to be fairly well tolerated. The, the big things that we're going to see are going to be some, um, you know, hematopoietic issues, um, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, not commonly, but they do happen. Um, there all are certainly descriptions of peripheral neuropathies. Um, and so they can get some twitchiness and sometimes kind of the probably paresthesias and, you know, shaking their paws, little mm. trembling and things like that. I've seen it once. Um, it's not a common thing, but but can happen. Most of the adverse effects of chlorambucil, though, are reversible with withdrawal of the drug. Um, and so that's kind of nice. Yeah. Um, Fanconi syndrome, like renal tubular acidosis has been described. Like, But we're starting to get into the weeds of some of these kind of... Very weedy there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Okay, well, that is amazing. This has been such a great discussion about a really important topic. And yeah, I think we so. see so many cats with a chronic enteropathy in general practice. So thank you so much. Of course. Really appreciate it. So um, I would just like to mention that our episode today, as usual, has been sponsored by our own OVC Pet Trust. And I know that, Matt, you had some research that was sponsored by Pet Trust about your feline platelet studies, right? Yeah, yeah. Most of my platelet work has been Pet Trust sponsored, at least in part, yeah. Fantastic. So OVC Pet Trust is dedicated to research that advances the health and well-being of animals. And you can check out their website at www.ovcpettrust.ca. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any ideas for a future podcast, please email us at vetsessions at hotmail.com. And please follow us on Instagram at vetsessions as well. Take care until next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks a lot.